The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. Today's topic, an interrevolution in Islam, including gays, women, and secular government. Meet Ani Zonefeld, founder of Muslims for Progressive Values, a woman redefining what it means to be Muslim. Malaysian-born Muslim Ani Zonefeld was radicalized by September 11th, but she wasn't radicalized in a way we traditionally think. She was appalled by how her religion was represented by extremists, and she decided to do something about it. Yeah. Having tried to, yeah. <laughs> having, having tried to work with other groups, she finally founded Muslims for Progressive Values in 2007. And amazingly, her work has spread throughout the U.S. and internationally. Though she doesn't use these terms, her organization is calling for what amounts to an inner revolution in Islam. What do they believe? Why? How did Ani come to step so far outside tradition? Why does she see her Islam as the true, the, the, the true Islam? How have others reacted to her message? Where has she been accepted, and how has she been opposed? How did her organization grow internationally? And what's the significance of their receiving non-governmental organization status at the UN? For this and more, stay tuned. Discover a different Islam, and welcome Ani Zonneveld to our show. And now, here's Beth. Hi, thanks, James. Well, this is very exciting. I am so happy. We we just Ani and uh, James and I just talked like for two minutes before the show, but I've been reading all about her, and I think you guys are going to want to hear this woman because we have a lot of views and prejudices and stereotypes about Islam, and it's really refreshing always to find people who are stepping outside of the box of their own culture, but also step outside the box of what we think of as a Muslim. So I'm very excited to talk to Ani, but first, as you know, we always take a look at the news of the interrevolution. For those of you who are new to our show, how we define the interrevolution is the movement of consciousness. It's people who are really saying we are one and it's time we start living that way. We're one with one another. We're one with the earth. We are accountable for what we do and the impact of our behavior on ourselves, on one another, and on the whole planet. And we believe in mutual support. We support the whole and the whole supports us. So we're very, very uh, tuned in to some of the most exciting things that are happening on the planet today. And we will shortly be bringing to you Ani Zonefeld, who represents that as well. But first, James, can you bring us the news of the inner revolution? Yes, indeed. Our first item is from the Huffington Post, dated November the 4th. U.S. electric sector expected to hit lowest emissions in 20 years. 
The U.S. electric electricity sector is expected to hit its lowest carbon emissions since 1995 this year, partly due to a widespread closure of coal-powered power plants over the past five years, according to a Sierra Club report just released Wednesday. The analysis, also backed by Bloomberg Philanthropies, found that the electric sector is on track to total just 1,983 million metric tons this year, marking the first time the sector's carbon emissions have fallen below 2 billion metric tons in two decades. That's still a lot of metric tons, but (laughs) it's getting better. That's right. Yeah. After Congress failed to pass the 2010 Waxman-Markey bill, a piece of climate legislation that the Sierra Club, well, climate legislation, the Sierra Club and Bloomberg Philanthropies doubled down on their Beyond Coal campaign to, as a state, circumvent a gridlocked Congress and work directly in states and with local community groups. They ultimately secured the closure or planned closure of one-third of U.S. coal plants and take some credit for the emissions reductions. We at Interrevolutionary Radio are scratching our heads about how they did that. Wouldn't that be fascinating to know how they did it? Michael R. Bloomberg, Bloomberg, the UN Secretary General's Special Envoy for Cities and Climate Change, commented that the domestic reductions will give President Obama a strong negotiating hand at the UN's climate summit in Paris. And hopefully we can help lead the rest of the world in the same direction. Yes, I really like this story because it shows you what people taking accountability can do. I mean, yes, the government really needs to do something. But if it doesn't, we have to do something. And in fact, the government can't do this alone. You know, we've had many shows on climate change and we've talked a lot about what we can do. And it's always exciting to see people going forward and making a change that's making a difference. We need a lot more of that. Okay, James. Okay. Many of you are aware that there's been a lot of talk about the war on crime and what a mess the criminal justice system is. Mentally ill and drug-addicted people in prison instead of getting treatment. And the prisons overflowing with people who probably shouldn't be there. Well, there are a lot of consequences to over-incarceration. Consequences to our society, our economy, and the prisoners, and their families as well. So here's an interesting story from Upworthy.com, dated November the 2nd. President Obama banned the box. What does it, what it means and why you should care? President Obama has issued an executive order this week banning the box for federal government employees. What does this mean? Well, you know how on job applications, there's sometimes a little box that asks whether or not you've been convicted of a crime. With a wave of a pen, Obama just ordered that box to be removed from applications for jobs within the federal government, saying, we can't dismiss people out of hand simply because of a mistake they made in the past. The president's move follows a 2012 Equal Employment Opportunity Commission recommendation as to how arrests and convictions should be treated under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The box has been increasingly criticized as a hurdle that fosters employment discrimination against former inmates, regardless of the severity of their offenses or or how long ago it occurred. Within the the first year after their release from prison, 60% to 75% of individuals are unable to find work. When people are unable to find a job, they're more likely to find a source of income outside the law. And that puts these individuals back in prison. And it's really expensive to keep people locked up. We spend $80 billion a year on incarceration. 
19 states have banned the box for public sector jobs. Seven states have also banned it for private employers. Banning the box is just a part of the president's plan for criminal justice reform push. The president is also calling on Congress to pass the Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act of 2015, which would address mandatory minimum sentences, the use of solitary confinement, and development of a system to assess the risk level of prisoners. And now we think you might like this story. What do you think? Yeah, Uh, I think this is fabulous. You know, there is a lot of stuff going on now of people looking at these rates of mass incarceration. I mean, isn't this a duh I mean, how did the heck do we expect people to support themselves legally when they can't get jobs? I, I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It's like, are we waking up from a long dream? I hope so. In fact, you know, we talk about thinking outside the box. Banning the box altogether sounds even better. Okay, and our final story, James. Yes, from the Huffington Post, November the 3rd. A vision of peace as Muslims, Jews, spread hummus, not hate. Hummus, a signature dish of Middle Eastern cuisine, has today become a symbol of peace as 15 Muslim and Jewish activists break bread together and participate in an all-day bus tour of Maryland, Washington, D.C., and Virginia with a message of reconciliation. Bearing trays of homemade hummus and pita bread, the activists hope to spread the message that Muslims and Jews refuse to be enemies. The activists will share the food with people they meet during the day and invite members of the public to sign a Stand Up for the Other pledge, which states, While interacting with members of my own faith or ethnic community or with others, if I hear hateful comments from anyone about members of any other community, I pledge to stand up for the other and challenge bigotry in any form. This second annual Spread Hummus Not Hate bus tour is a joint venture of the Foundation for Ethnic Understanding and the Greater Washington Muslim Jewish Forum. It's part of a month-long season of twinning initiated to promote Muslim Jewish events in communities around the world. The campaign began in 2014 in response to a series of anti-Muslim ads that that appeared months before on city buses in D.C. and New York City, ads that were found to be unconstitutional in court. So something good came out of something bad. The activists will visit universities, public parks, mosques, and synagogues, sharing hummus and pita with everyone they meet along the way. By spreading hummus on pita and enjoying it together, we are spreading love, empathy, and reconciliation to replace hatred, fear, and anger, said Dr. Sahar Kamas, Associate Professor of Communication at the University of Maryland. Well, this is, of course, a perfect story that's going to be segueing into our program because we're talking about Muslims and the, the way that we see Muslims. But what I particularly love about this story is that everyone is being asked to pledge that we are going to stop being bystanders when people are downgrading other people. And I have seen this over and over of people, you know, making, well, in my day, people were making Polish jokes. Do you remember that, James? I do, indeed. Yeah, but there used to be Polish jokes, and there were Irish jokes, and Italian jokes, and, uh, you know, then there's black jokes, and Jewish jokes, and, uh, you know, it's really repulsive. And I was furious, because I was brought up in the Jewish faith, even though I'm not a practicing a religious person, and um, I would be with Jewish people who were saying things about blacks. I mean, I said, wasn't the Holocaust enough 
to bring to our awareness the fact that we can't let this kind of thing happen. So I think it's beautiful, and I love that phrase, we refuse to be enemies. I wish I could remember that when I'm having an argument with my best friend and my husband. Let (laughs) us, I mean, seriously, you know, if we're going to change the world and become more in oneness, we have to do it everywhere. And that includes our personal relationships. So with no further ado, I would like to bring in our guest today, Ani Zonnefeld, and I hope that she is going to bring a lot of light, and I'm sure there's going to be lots of laughter too, into a conversation about what Islam is and isn't and what is being done. So welcome to our show, Ani. Thank you, Beth, for having me. So the first thing I have to ask you is, how did you become who you are? Now, we see that uh, James read or I don't even know if it was in that, that your father was uh, an ambassador, and you grew up in many parts of the world. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like growing up, that kind of life, and how that has impacted you and the kind of person you are today? Yes. Um, the, uh, the, that sort of lifestyle, the exposure to different cultures and different religions, um, I think it... Uh, it, it I was raised with this very global, inclusive worldview. My parents, I'm born, raised Muslim in a very traditional sense. And yet, um, I, and I don't have any bitter um, experiences of being a Muslim. It's been very positive. Um, and my parents raised me, uh, even though I'm a girl, and within the Muslim context, pushed me as hard as they pushed <laughs> my brothers. Right? So the, and people have this perception, oh, you know, girls and women in the Muslim world are oppressed. But that's not, um, that's not the case in every Muslim country. It depends on the culture. Yeah. Um, so, from for a Muslim from Malaysia, the gender parity is 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 not as um, stark as say in the Middle East or South Asia, for example. Um, and African uh, Muslims in the African continent are different. But I'll share one particular experience that that will will sum it up. Um, in, in, in the way I was raised and that is uh, when I was five years old I was going to the British school in Germany and during those days assembly meant you would gav- be gathered to pray and uh, the prayer was to Jesus Christ and so I went home and <laughs> very troubled and I said to my mom so what do I do you know that we're praying to Jesus Christ and my mom would s- said to me well I'll just replace Jesus with Allah and you're fine because we're all <laughs> praying yeah we're all praying to <laughs> this to the same God, um, you know, that, and that's her response. So she didn't take me out of school. She didn't take me out of the assembly. She didn't make any, my parents didn't make any special arrangements to accommodate me. Um, that would have been quite appalling, actually. So I learned, uh, so my exposure to Christianity was obviously started at a very young age. Um, Malaysia being mu- very multicultural, multireligious, um, uh, you are exposed to the, the diversity and the richness of God, is how I put it. Um, and it's not a, and it's 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 all good. <laughs> it's that's how I see it, anyway. Well, I think that's a beautiful story because having grown up Jewish in a Christian country, and remember, because of my age, see, I grew up in the. Uh, you know, I started going to school in 1950, and it was very, you know, unidimensional. Um, and I had to face the same thing that you did. 
of you know how do I uh, how do I feel myself in an in an environment where there's Christmas trees everywhere and there's Santa Claus and all of that kind of stuff and we were able to do that too that we could feel the richness of our own tradition while simultaneously being able to coexist as long as everyone takes that attitude it works beautifully yeah. what what the problem is that not everybody takes that attitude yeah and that's a shame um, I think uh, the the radicalism has happened or the and it's not just in, in the Muslim context but in various forms here in the United States you have the radical right um, um, basically promoting the radicals within the Muslim community as uh, their theology as truth and yes. so everybody's um, arming up so to speak which is not the spiral that we want well I couldn't agree with you more I feel like the rise of fundamentalism um, has been very disturbing and I, I don't care what you believe I mean you can believe anything you want to believe unless you're uh, hurting other people yeah. And then I really do care about what you believe. And so when you have people running for office who will say, like, I don't believe in evolution, you know, and, <laughs> and there's no longer that separation between church and state, I think we're all in trouble. Yeah. So that is a very important issue because I think that Americans are very afraid of Muslims because of what they have seen in terms of those nations which are believe in Sharia law. And so, since that is such a major fear, we're going to be going to a commercial break. And when we come back, I'd really like you to address the issue of how you see that. I mean, is that necessarily the case? You know, the, just because you're a Muslim, do you have to believe uh, in Sharia law? And what is Sharia law anyway? Um, so I would love to take that on. So why don't we go to break now? Because I know that's a, a rich topic. So stick around because if you want the answers to these questions, you need to stick with us. Making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Transform yourself and your world. Check out Beth Green's online community, theinnerrevolution.org, where you'll find effective support to become the person you really are. Find a variety of activities, including men's, women's, and family groups, low-fee counseling, workshops, events, and free support. Subscribe to our newsletter and receive a free PDF of Beth's book, Living with Reality. Meet a group dedicated to galvanizing the inner revolution sweeping our world, all at www.theinnerrevolution.org. I'm Beth Green, and I want to help you revolutionize yourself and our world. Take advantage of my powerful intuition in a private consultation that will amaze you. Discover my five books, three CDs of original music, School of Intuitive Counseling, upcoming workshops, trainings, and community. Sign up for my newsletter and get a free PDF of my book, Living with Reality. Tune into Inner Revolutionary TV, my channel on voiceamerica.tv. Find this and more at my website, theinnerrevolution.org. 
Be part of the inner revolution sweeping the planet. Tune into Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green on the Voice America Variety Channel. And now, also enjoy Beth's channel, Inner Revolutionary TV, on voiceamerica.tv. See inspiring videos about our guests and the inner revolution. Hear commentaries that will help clarify our time. And watch interviews of people who will matter to you. Think outside the box. Watch Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You're tuned in to Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and co host James Maynard. To share your questions and comments, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Now, back to Inner Revolutionary Radio. Hi, welcome back to Inner Revolutionary Radio. We are today talking to Ani Zonnefeld, who is the founder of Muslims for Progressive Values, and she is going to bust every stereotype you have. So I hope that you're listening in, and, I, and I'm also hoping that after the show you spread this podcast. I mean, it's important to spread information so everybody has, you know, a, you know, if you only hear negatives about people, you're going to believe that's who they are. And uh, it's important to get the whole picture. So, Ani, we were just, uh, I asked you a question before we got, uh, went into our break about Sharia law and secular Muslims and all of that. Because this is something that a lot of Americans, and we also have listeners across overseas because this goes podcast, who are very concerned about that. And that's a big fear that comes up for them around Muslims. So, uh, would you please share with us your thoughts and perspective on that? Okay. So, there's uh, two concepts that we have to define. First is Sharia, and the second concept is Sharia law. Sharia is basically um, described in the Quran as the watering hole that quenches your spiritual thirst. It is a set of guidelines. It's not laws. It's a set of guidelines on how to lead and live an ethical humane lifestyle. Um, So then you have Sharia law that started coming about 100, 200 years after Prophet Muhammad died. So what happened was the rulers after Prophet Muhammad died came about and they their territory started to grow and there were more more Muslims and they needed to control the population. Mm -hmm. And so what they did was these medieval men in the 700s started extrapolating their understanding of the Quran and they mix it up with the social norms of the day. So, for example, child marriage, forced marriage, um, and uh, secular norms of the day. So, for example, female genital cutting and mutilation. And they meshed it all up. And then they went to the religious uh, clergy that is on their pay scale. Um, <laughs> yeah. And they says, hey, you know, uh, this is, we, we want you to put the religious stamp of approval on this. And so now you have Sharia law which is supposedly God's law. So throughout the centuries, you have had uh, you have various variations of the Sharia law. That's why Sharia law in Muslim-majority countries are not uniform. In Malaysia, it's different than in Morocco. It's different in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Saudi Arabia. They're also, if it's really God's law, it should be the same, but it's yeah. not, right? Yeah. So that's one point. The second point is, 
You cannot say Sharia law is God's law if it contradicts the Quran. So I'll give you two examples. One is um, forced marriage or child marriage in Sharia law. The Quran is very clear. Marriage is between two consenting adults. And the other point is the woman has a last say on who she marries. Right? So the fact that the Sharia law contradicts the Quran, which is supposedly God's law, God's words, right? How yeah. does that work? How does that yeah. happen? Yeah, how does so, that happen? Exactly. The, well, don't so, people say they, there are these hadiths? I mean, I'm not speaking right. as an expert, right? Yes. That say this and that and the other thing. Correct. Isn't there stoning, cutting off of the hands? Isn't right. this supposedly from the so, Quran? So let me, uh, so here you have stoning. Um, stoning is not in the Quran. There's no, there's no stoning in the Quran, period. But yet, just the other day, an Afghanistani uh, young woman got stoned to death for supposedly extramarital affair. Yeah. So the stoning that happened in the Hadith, the Hadith is a collection of writings that, has start, that, that was compiled 200 years after Prophet, Prophet Muhammad died by men, uh, religious men, um, that claim Prophet Muhammad said this and Prophet Muhammad did that. 200 mm-hmm. years, okay? Yeah. I don't so, know, but that's a yeah. long time to be oh my collecting. God. Isn't, Ani, isn't that just like uh, Christianity? Because the New Testament didn't come about till I think about 200 years after Jesus died, assuming there was a historical Jesus. It was about 100 years after, I believe. About 100 years after, and it's very, very similar. I mean, to right. everything is set in stone based on what somebody said, somebody said, somebody said. I can't even get clear a conversation with somebody that they just had it on the phone, That's and right. they call me and tell, tell me, you know, remember that grapevine uh, game? So that's a really frightening thing, and to think that people call that the Word of God, and then they get so self-righteous around yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. So the, the, so the stoning part is not in the Quran, but is in the Hadith, and the, this is the story. So Prophet Muhammad was a governor, and he, like, like here in the state of California, you govern over a diverse group of people. And among his um, population that, that he was governing, there was the Jewish, uh, uh, there were several Jewish tribes, there were Christians, there were pagans, there were Muslims, non-Muslims, and everything in between, right? Yeah. And so, um, now, the, the agreement was that Prophet Muhammad was the governor of all these different tribes and their faith traditions and cultural traditions on the condition that they get to... Uh, practice their faith, uh, their religious laws. Okay? Yeah. So the stoning that happened was in particular Jewish tribe uh, for, that, for that particular incident. Mm-hmm. It, but Muslims have interpreted as if it was, it was a, a Muslim, an Islamic practice. But it wasn't an Islamic practice. It was specifically for that particular Jewish tribe um, and its religious laws. Um, so, so it has become so corrupted, the, the interpretation of Islam is so corrupt um, that um, here today we have you know, women being stoned for no good reason. You yeah. have uh, people being thrown in jail for apostasy, which again contradicts the Quran. Yeah. Um, the list goes on and on and on. And what's really appalling is that none of the religious leaders have the guts and the backbone to call it out says hang on guys we've been teaching it to you wrong yes that's not what it's about 
Yes, well, that would take some self-awareness, wouldn't it? And it would take self-honesty. And, it, and it'd be willingness to get off the hierarchy. Because, you know, this is what happens with the religion. With any institution is people get into a hierarchical relationship to one another and they want to keep their power. I mean, look at the justification of the oppression of women. Yes. It, it, it really is a justification of men keeping their old position, and it really has nothing to do with God. Absolutely not. And the, 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 justific, the justification that we are challenging is um, that we go right to the heart of it, and that is whatever you're saying about women and women's rights completely contradicts the Quran. So our work is really rooted in, in faith, in, in the language of faith, in the Quran, and there are some good traditions that we've sort of um, dusted off because, yeah. you know, it's always the good tradition that gets buried and yeah. <laughs> get replaced by the ugly one yeah. and, and the misogynistic one. So that's what we've been doing. So the reason that we're still standing after so many years is because everything is rooted in good traditions and Quran and the scholars have not attacked us because they know the, the, the premises from which we do our activism and advocacy is sound, sound theology. Oh. It's the young punks that have been brainwashed by the radical imams um, that are the troublemakers. Mm. Well, I'd like to get back to that in a second, but I'm just curious uh, about this point because, see, one of my beliefs is I don't care what was written 5,000, 2,000, 100 years ago. Is it right? Is it true? Is it relevant? So, you know, if I find something that, I, that has been said and has been said over and over and over and over and everybody agrees to it, it doesn't mean it's right and I'm not going to go for it. I don't care if it's in the Bible or in the Constitution. It doesn't make it any difference to me. I think sacred texts to me, now I don't, I'm not saying that you feel this way and I'm kind of curious about how you feel because I think it's a mistake because to me what we hear from God is what we're capable of hearing. If there was a, uh, an ant channeling God, it would be very limited in its consciousness. And human consciousness is pretty immature. And so even if God were speaking and we were hearing God, I don't think, you know, if, can you imagine if you were teaching nuclear physics to a five-year-old, what the five-year-old would end up saying? So that's my view on sacred texts. <laughs> is that as long as humanity is in a state of kind of uh, emotional and spiritual immaturity and caught up in old traditions and cultures and so on, that we couldn't even hear God clearly if we wanted to. And I also personally think that God is evolving and can change her mind. Uh, There's no reason to stick to those texts. So I hear what you're saying about being founded in faith and good Uh, religious faith scripture reading, you know, that will help you. But don't you feel or do you feel that if you find something, even if it is in the Quran, if you don't think it's right, you say, hey. (laughs) Yeah. So we evolve. No, absolutely. And but for the work that we do, there's there's the personal and then there's the work that we do. Right. Uh, If we're going to be if we're going to be talking about human rights that are being justified in the name of Sharia law, we have to speak in that language, because if we speak in the language of secularism, then it's 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 a moot point. It's irrelevant to them. Yeah. So we that's the argument that we make at the United Nations and also on the grassroots Um, at the U.N. We filed a report with Somalia. Um, 
debunking their human rights uh, abuses in the name of Sharia law. So I'm going to Geneva in in December, making my statement and arguing, um, making the point, uh, co- countering every point that they're giving mm-hmm. for those justifications. But there is there is also the spiritual. Um, you look, all of the prophets. They didn't have a book. They didn't leave a book. It was written for them, right? Yeah. Jesus, Muhammad was the same. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't. They didn't compile it. They didn't write it down. But what they did was, uh, there is the Quran is a is, is a way. It's a spiritual enlightenment path. Um, yes. And you know, there is the saying in a hadith, and this is a hadith that I like absolutely love. Um, and this one says that to know yourself is to know God. Mm-hmm. And so this is the spiritual uh, teaching that should have been the practice of Islam. And I'm sure Christianity and Judaism ha- has the same mysticism aspect of it, right? Yes. But yes. the mysticism has been done away with. Now, Islam has the mysticism, and that is Sufism. Yes. And that is very much alive and well. Um, so you've got, but the... the um, it is the dogma that has yes. killed off the spiritual path of Islam, the spiritualness yes. of Islam. I, you know, this is something that is so sad because sometimes I read, I, for instance, I read something, I probably am not saying this right, but I think it was a hadith and it said the real jihad is uh, to master one's ego. And um, That's I thought, right. yeah, yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. That's what we're trying to teach. It's really about how do we confront that ego-based, self-centered, selfish, lack of oneness. And we see people who talk about religion, and yet there is no oneness in them. And how does that at all sync up with the real spirit of a religion? And how we get caught up in doctrine and dogma and uh, prejudice is just a very sad thing because to me it's a perversion of the real value of spirituality, which is for us to feel our connection to one another. Yeah, yeah. So uh, how, I'm how, into that. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, so, you know, two things have come up from what you were just saying. One, I'm very curious about what you feel you're accomplishing at the UN. Uh, with this NGO status, and could you talk a little bit about that? It's like, okay, you go and you and you speak about this, about Somalia. How much impact does that have? Um, on the international level, I think just the our mere existence and uh, the counter narrative that we're offering at that international level has uh, challenged the member states. So the member states are the countries, the Muslim majority countries, of um, their human rights abuses from the religious uh, perspective. Um, it's it, it puts them in a corner. Um, now what. What doesn't happen is it doesn't translate to change on the ground. So, but that's another aspect of the work that we do. Um, so, uh, we file these papers and we do panel discussions. We educate Muslims and we also educate other other diplomats, non-Muslims. Just as I'm speaking to you today, when I speak to mem- uh, the diplomats and ambassadors or on committees, um, it informs them that it, it gives them the tools. And it, it informs them of, of they, they can use our language to actually do the work and to amplify the counter-narrative. And that's actually really powerful. If you don't have a counter-narrative 
as a tool, you're, you're defeated. Yes. Uh, you assume that blasphemy and apostasy is punishable by death in Islam, and there's no argument there. But actually, there is an argument there, and there's yeah. a huge argument going on right now. Now, what we do to do to make the change on the ground is we take um, we make the information that we're doing really accessible to uh, to uh, to people on the ground with through social media, infographics, and so on and so forth. So now you have prayers, uh, meetings where women are leading. Uh, you you have uh, places where. Uh, the gay community and transgender community are welcome. Are, are, are these growing? Yes, they are. Um, it, it's, and it's really heartening that it is uh, because at the end of the day, we look at um, LGBT, transgender, all human beings as equal. And we don't care what religion or what race or what what particular denomination you come from as a Muslim, for example. So our mem- the members of our community are very diverse. They're straight, um, transgender, you know, the whole spectrum of sexuality, but but also age and race um, and denomination. So you have Sunni, Shia, you have Ahmadiyya, yeah, all coming together because they see that all these denominations are actually man-made construct yeah, oh the, my god and, how true and, yeah and so when they read the quran a muslim is basically a muslim with a small m which means believer now you can define believer in a big way and it doesn't mean it's a muslim with a capital m because that makes it an ex- exclusive club yes. i'm not the only muslim with a small m you are <laughs> and so many other people are so yeah. you know what i'm saying so oh yeah i mean yeah. when i hear the beautiful passages and I, you know, I was reading about your work and, and what I see, I think, oh, I'm a Muslim. I feel very attracted to that, yeah. you know, because you can feel that universal spirituality and it's so uplifting and it's beautiful. So I, I love that. And do you have, um, we're going to be going to break in a couple of minutes, but very quickly, do you actually have mosques that you, some of your members have created? Do you have imams? I, I've seen one of them on one of your videos. Yeah, so we don't have a mosque, but we have, uh, we do gather for prayers. Um, and most of the community, our chapters, do that on a regular basis. Um, and um, we are very egalitarian. So we pray unsegregated, like the way we pray in Mecca. Mecca. So we call it the Mecca style. And mm-hmm. sometimes a woman leads prayer, sometimes it's a man. So we. We, ha- we are definitely not hierarchy, and it's very egalitarian in our practice. Um, and it's, it's as simple as that. Yes, it really is as simple as that. And it's really about community rather than buildings. I, I remember myself, you know, as, as uh, when I was a child, we didn't have a syn- Nobody had the money to have a synagogue. So, you know, people a- had meetings in other in other religious uh, institutions or yeah, and then they right. built things so it's really grassroots so um, one quick question before we go to break so you say that you believe in secular law are you the only one isn't there really a history <laughs> I mean isn't the history of the Middle East that there were many governments that were secular in the past in yes. Muslim countries Yes, um, but there were also dictator, dict, 
dictatorships, right? They, yes, 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 they were tyrannical authoritarian organizations. So I think we'll have to continue with that after the break. We certainly will. Okay, so when we come back from break, we're going to hear a little bit more about that because I think that's another place that people have fear. And then we'd like to talk about the reception. So don't go away because th- I'm fascinated. I want you to stick with us. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Transform yourself and your world. Check out Beth Green's online community, TheInnerRevolution.org, where you'll find effective support to become the person you really are. Find a variety of activities, including men's, women's, and family groups, low-fee counseling, workshops, events, and free support. Subscribe to our newsletter and receive a free PDF of Beth's book, Living with Reality. Meet a group dedicated to galvanizing the inner revolution sweeping our world, all at www.TheInnerRevolution.org. I'm Beth Green, and I want to help you revolutionize yourself and our world. Take advantage of my powerful intuition in a private consultation that will amaze you. Discover my five books, three CDs of original music, School of Intuitive Counseling, upcoming workshops, trainings, and community. Sign up for my newsletter and get a free PDF of my book, Living with Reality. Tune into Inner Revolutionary TV, my channel on voiceamerica.tv. Find this and more at my website, theinnerrevolution.org. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. You're tuned in to Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and co-host James Maynard. To share your questions and comments, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to Inner Revolutionary Radio. Hi, welcome back to Inner Revolutionary Radio. This is Beth Green, your host, James Maynard, your co-host, and we are interviewing a delightful, intelligent, extremely knowledgeable woman named Ani Zonnefeld, who is the founder of Muslims for Progressive Values. And I hope that you are all stunned out there about what you didn't know about Islam. I am. And I love being educated. That's one of the great things that keeps me young, (laughs) is keeping on learning. And by the way, Ani, I have to tell you one thing. We interviewed a woman named Dr. Sakina Yakubi from Afghanistan. She started the Afghan Institute of Learning, and she opened up like 60 underground schools in Afghanistan under the Taliban and has just gone on to do amazing things. And her father encouraged her to be a full active participant in Afghanistan because that was before the Russian invasion. And so when you were sharing that and you said that not everybody is brought up the same way, uh, you know, I just wanted to, for those of you guys who listened to that show that was, you know, in August, that, yes, and we have had other women who were supported by men. And I love that. That's so important because everybody needs to get in on this. It's not just gays who have to you know, defend gays or women have to defend women. I mean, all of us together have to protect each other's well-being and rights. So I had started to talk to Ani, ask her some questions about secularism, and she said that she would be happy to reply. So um, 
if as a Muslim here in in the United States, I I feel that the laws of the land is my Sharia law because it was you know Sharia like I was describing earlier is a way yeah. to 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 live a, a wholesome ethical lifestyle, yeah. and um, and there are guidelines on on punishment but under very strict preconditions. But if you, um, we are now in, to, in the 21st century, um, you know, this Sharia law is basically our constitution, and for me the California law is my Sharia law. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't see a need for Sharia law in the United States um, because I think the essence of Sharia is about ethics, it's about justice, and if the law of the land in California protects me as a as a woman, then that's it. That's all I need. Yeah. Now you have um, Muslims in the Muslim world, and that's a different. It's a that's a different policy and the different thinking, the different game, because they base everything they do on faith and what does the Quran say about this and what does the Quran say about that? How um, how does the women inherit? And this is a big argument that's happening right now, the yeah. inheritance for women. The Quran describes inheritance for women, um, you know, being less the, less of than of boys, yes. depending on how many siblings you have and so on and so forth. But that was that was described as a minimum, number one. And number two, inheritance to women is also based on the fact during society at that time, men were the sole providers. But yeah. now that's not the case. Yeah. So society has changed. In Morocco, for example, 20% of women are sole household um, breadwinners. Wow. So, you know, that's a huge chunk of the population. So inheritance laws need to change based on the society and the times that we live in. And then the Quran is also very clear that this book is a guide for all people for all times. Now, we need to live up to that yeah. mandate of 21st century and let's revisit and reinterpret it based on our 21st century, the relevance of our lives now. That doesn't quite answer your secular question, but for me it does. Yeah. Um, it, I'm secular in that sense, but I'm a spiritual, I'm Muslim, I identify myself as a progressive Muslim woman feminist, and um, whereas Muslims in the Muslim world, there's, it's, it's a lot, it's more gray than, you know, and more complicated than a straight answer like that. Well, even in the United States, I think that some Muslims have started to demand that, like, the airline... Uh, she doesn't. She doesn't want to have to serve alcohol. And you know, I think. Well, why are you a stewardess then? Is, which is the same question I had about Kim Davis not wanting to give uh, licenses. I mean, the moment that you really start getting religion involved with law, you've yeah. gone beyond ethics. You've gone beyond yeah. what is right and what is fair. And I don't care where that's coming from. That's, I agree. Yeah. You know, to me, that's really wrong. And I believe that we need to really start focusing on universal human values and in fact I just did a video on that for Voice America TV on our Inner Revolutionary TV channel if you want to take a look anybody out there you know I think it's it's important that we start promoting universal human values I think in our hearts we know female genital mutilation is wrong just because it's been done for millions of years I know it's I, I always talk in hyperbole doesn't make it right and it's the same thing in the things that we do 
you know, in the, well, I know that it happens in this country too, but I don't care what religion you're from or what society you're in. We all need to become more humanitarian, more loving, yeah. more concerned about one another. And this is not a one you know, a one-way street. And you, so what about the imams? How many of them are really, or not how many, but what kind of people are supporting this kind of change and who's opposing? And Yeah, so, you know, you've got your head imams that have caused quite a bit of mayhem in the world. But we've, you know, for the longest time, we've really, uh, we looked at imams with quite a bit of disdain. Now, explain what an imam is first, just very um, quickly. So there are different levels of imam. I mean, you have imams that basically lead prayers, but you have imams that are that really hold. Um, there are educated scholars of Islam themselves, and they have yeah. massive congregations. And you have the TV imams as well, just like you have the TV <laughs> evangelical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so you know, there are different varying degrees of imams, and or some are educated, some are not. So, but the thing is. Um, a lot of them has been perpetuating that uh, theology, Wahhabism, which is very intolerant, very segregationist, and quite hateful theology. And that, in the last 25 years, has become sort of a norm. Um, yes, and that came out of Saudi Arabia, didn't it? That's right. And so that's the fight. And then you've got... Um, but then we also started realizing, you know what, there are some really good imams out there that are really trying to do the right thing, but they get ostracized, they get, uh, they're they really mishandled, and in some instances, they're also killed. So we need to empower these imams. So we call these imams, Imams Fashi. And we have an initiative that is called Imams Fashi, and basically we're, we're, promoting these imams who talk about gender parity that um, that speak up against child marriage, forced marriage, and that speak up for education of girls, and so on and so forth. Um, and so the good news is that more imams are coming on board. Recently, we have a, a, an association of 26 imams from Burundi that have signed on. No. Yes, yes. So... <laughs> You're um, kidding! I'm not kidding. That's so amazing. Yeah, yeah, and you know, there's an imam from Bahrain and the UK and New York, and so we just need to get more and more of these imams on board. Um, that's somewhere in the Middle East, Bahrain. Yeah, that's right. And in Tunisia now, now I um, Tunisia is the kind of Islam that we should be practicing because in Tunisia for many decades polygamy has been outlawed. Women uh, can divorce their husbands. You know, education, marriage, eighteen years old uh, for both sexes. So, but unfortunately, and oh, uh, you'll love this one, Beth. Uh, the Tunisian constitution is um, states, I think it's Article 6, that uh, there is uh, free, um, freedom of conscience. That means you can believe or not. Um, no punishment. So, um, so Tunisia is very ahead of its time. But unfortunately, that's not the Islam that we're practicing primarily because they're not a rich country. So that's... Yes. And that's slap in the middle of, you know, Middle East, North Africa. And so, um, my God, we're going to run out of time. So, so a million questions are in my head. Why do you feel that this most conservative, hateful, negative, stereotypical Islam has become so much the norm? 
because they um, Saudi Arabia um, is the home of you know the holy two holy sites, and they are also the founder of Organization of Islamic Conference, which is sort of our Muslim UN, and um, they have a lot of money and they have opened up a lot of mosques even here in the United States, um, a lot of the funding um, of the schools and mosques have been from Saudi uh, Saudi Arabia for for some years in the United States that's not the case anymore but the doc, indoc, indoctrination has already happened um, so for example when I released my Islamic pop CD after 9-11 um, the, the Muslim institutions the retailers wouldn't sell them because they said one I use instrument you know, modern instrumentation, and Prophet Muhammad didn't have it during those days. And then, and I'm like, oh, you mean like the phone we're speaking on? You know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the other, and then the other point was um, that the biggest thing is the biggest sin is that I'm a female singer, and so my female voice is sexual. And we can have a whole hour discussion about sexuality and sexualization of Islam, but. Um, but basically, those were the reasons. And that's very Saudi. And, but one thing, culturally, it was the women. Uh, women were teachers. We taught the men about Islam because we were the first converts. Um, because it uplifted women. And, um, and you know. We, sorry? You mean way back when? In yeah. The, like, yeah. Yeah, and you know that we were the scholars, the, the the teachers, the poets, the singers, what have you. And then now you're they're sensing our voice. It's it's culturally um, disconnected, and for them to justify it in the name of Islam is absolutely false. Well, that is fascinating. Now, Ani, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but you just said we could talk again about the sexualization of women in Islam. And I would like to have you come back if you don't mind, because I think that there's so much more. This is a topic that is that we have very little information on. And uh, frankly, I haven't felt like I had someone that I could rely on that I thought really understood the religion. I could speak uh, about it in as neutral and objective a, a, a way as you. And so maybe... I mean, as, as rational as I can. <laughs> yeah, I you know, maybe you would come back. Because yeah, sure. uh, there's, I think there's more... There's a, it's a bigger story. It's a huge story. It's an international story. It's, it's a story of today. And, uh, but for right now, we are actually going to be closing soon. So first, I want you to tell people how can they learn more about... You, Muslims of, uh, for Progressive Values. Um, well, mpvusa.org is our website, and um, you can Google us and you'll find our website. We have um, a newsletter that we put out once a month, and um, it would be great if people signed up to that. It'll keep people up, uh, up to date on what we're doing, where, what city, what country. And we have a big event happening in end of January. It's called Colors. Uh, it's called Celebration of Life, and, um, and it's really highlighting the human rights defenders in the Muslim-majority countries and lifting their name and celebrating their lives, especially those who have been in prison, tortured, or killed. Yeah. Um, and we've got celebrities signed up to assume the personality of those human rights defenders. So I'm really excited about that. Oh, and, my. Yeah, and CBS um, studios have donated their space. So it's really? Very yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. I am so... Look, uh, we have to stop because James has to tell us about next week. But I am thrilled... And I want to talk to you afterwards about when you might come back 
and you know what would be a good time that would work and that you could give us more information but I haven't signed up for your newsletter and I've got to do that okay James tell us what we're doing next week okay next week the drug war is failing but the human spirit is rising the inner revolution in Colombia and what it means for us Meet Latin America correspondent Anastasia Maloney and learn all about it. We know that most of the cocaine that hits the streets of America comes from Colombia. And nothing has stopped the drug trade because nothing has yet stopped us from using. But now let's look at the drug trade from the other side. What impact has the trade, the war on drugs, and a decades-old civil war had on Colombia, on Central America and Mexico? How is the impact showing up at our borders? And what signs of inner revolution shine through? Anastasia Maloney, a British-born correspondent for the Thomson Reuters Foundation, has been covering the violence, the human rights violations, and the astounding inspirational stories. She will share stories of forgiveness and healing, resilience, etc., etc., and uh, help us to uh, uh, get a fuller understanding of what inter-revolutionaries can do in, in dangerous situations such as Colombia. Well, you guys are going to love Anastasia. Uh, by the way, she's British-born, as uh, James said, so it's, we don't have to deal with <laughs> If you can understand a British accent, you'll be fine. And I just want to give a big hug to Ani, and I'm so grateful that she came on our show. And we will be talking to you again because uh, we need this education. I found this fascinating educational for me. I hope you did too. Ani, you're a wonderful person. And uh, until next week, more blessings to all of you from Revolutionary Radio. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.